Well, why don't we uh, start off this book study by telling me what the first time you all read The Hobbit was. Yes. Wait, you've never read this book before? No, I read a comic version, but I'm not sure how much of the text from the original book is in in, was in the comic. So I know oh my the, god! So I know the story oh as intended god. by Tolkien, but I've never read the book. I'm so excited for this. <laughs> we get Eloise's first time reaction. Oh no. I'm not sure you want Wait, that. whose first time reaction to The Hobbit? Eloise. Oh my god. Eloise. <laughs> We also have you guys' first-time reaction to my first-time reaction. That's that's interesting. I like it. The two of us. The two of us. Hello. Hey. Hello. <laughs> Good to see you. I'm sorry if you can hear my chewing on the mic. <laughs> that's fine. I don't care. We just so... apologizing for the podcast, not not for each other. Hmm. Um, all right, who wants to go next for when was the first time you read The Hobbit? I guess I can. Can yeah. I finish my mouth? Um, <laughs> the first time I read The Hobbit was in junior high after the first movie came out, and I was like, Ooh. I need I need to know what happened next. And then I read the book in, like, a couple weeks, and I was like, what the fuck was that? Like, why was this so different? from the movie why was the movie so crap compared to this awesome <laughs> book and then the rest of the movies came out and i was like no what what happened why why but uh <laughs> i don't really remember when i first read it because i my brother got a copy when he was born, so I probably read it very, very young. But I did reread it, notably in junior high, as like a novel study in the class because we were doing that. And I think that huh. was a lot. Me. Um, I don't have any specific memories of it, but my dad used to read aloud to us like before bed. So we read Narnia and whatnot, and The Hobbit was was definitely in there. So, Dad reading reading a chapter before bed. <laughs> I was nice. probably like six or seven. That, that I think that's how Tristan experienced it too. Although younger than that, like I think his mom read it to him when he was like two, and Josh was like four. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um. <laughs> I read The Hobbit for the first time in grade six, all in one go on New Year's. Oh my god. So I just like didn't stop reading it. And I actually read The Hobbit after I read The Lord of the Rings because yeah. I, I don't even know. It just, it just happened that way. So um, yeah, I read all of The Lord of the Rings and then I read The Hobbit. So like that note at the beginning where it talks about how, like, orc has nothing to do with sea animals of the dolphin kind. Um, that was for 10-year-old Sophia, that note. 10-year-old Sophia was like, why are they called orcs? 
I'm imagining like orca whale heads on like legs with like arms. To be fair, that would be pretty. That would be pretty horrifying. I think. I mean, if that was yeah. what they look like. <laughs> Sophia, I have to say, don't feel like too weirded out by the fact you read the Hobbit after the Lord of the Ring. I'm reading the Hobbit after the Silmarillion, so you know. Like, <laughs> you, <laughs> give you an idea. That's such a weird Tolkien experience. <laughs> like, you know, different approach. Oh, man. Okay. So, yeah. Um, and now I'm like even more excited. Like genuinely, Eloise, I want to know how this compares to the fan fictions that I know you read before you read this book. It's less smut. Much less smut. <laughs> okay, well that's a given. Like, I mean, you never know. Else? There's implied smut in the scene, Marilyn. You never know. Um. Yeah, there's no implied smut in The Hobbit. Bilbo is just an unmarried 50-year-old bachelor with a lot of clothes, and none of those things imply anything socially at all. <laughs> I mean, socially it implies things. Smutly, it does not imply anything. There's nothing happening in the smut department. That's that, that's what we say. Absolutely not. There, there's no reason Bilbo would have that many nice guest bedrooms for the guests he likes having over. I mean, he inherited the house. Arguably, that says more about his father and mother. That's fair. <laughs> I... Um, apparently I'm 100% here to take your, um, children, your, your childhood and use it to disprove George R. R. Martin's assertion that you can't imagine hobbits having sex. I mean, that just, I think, shows a lack of imagination on George R. R. I mean, yes, clearly. I mean, just the first chapter mentioned how Belladonna took married, um... I forgot Baggins' name. Bongo. Bongo Baggins. It does, um, yeah. And yes, they had only one son. But we all know why. The Ladonna was like, no, no, the sex is fine. Just the kids are too much. We have one already. Deal with it. We are. Yeah. Um, I mean, one thing I found really interesting about this was that we meet Belladonna almost before we meet Bilbo. Like, it starts to go into who Bilbo's mother was before we even know that Bilbo's name is Bilbo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she seems like a very interesting character, and she was already remarkable. I had two remarkable sisters, and that's interesting. And then she kind of buried some regular guy. And that actually struck me as a bit sad. No, yeah. to, me, to me, this is hilarious, because to me, Belladonna basically saw Bungo, um, Bungo and was like, 
you. You will do. And he was like, what? What is happening? Who is this lady coming towards me? And then he, he was like, I guess I'm being proposed to. Uh, sure, let's get married. And the whole, as a whole marriage was like that. It's like Belladonna saying, we should do that. Okay, I'll do it. And that's, that's how I imagined the couple dynamic. And suddenly it's hilarious. I think the the interaction of Belladonna before Bilbo is interesting because it kind of shows the way the hobbits think. Like it's an interaction to hobbit culture before we're even introduced to what a hobbit actually 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 is after. But anyway, um, and it feels very apropos. It's like, oh, this is his family, and let's ramble on for a little bit, and then let's actually get to what we're talking about. So I kind of like it in that regard. There's actually a part later in the chapter where you see that culture clash with the dwarves where Bilbo starts to be like, my great great uncle Bullroarer was like, and then Thorin cuts him off like, right, but we're talking about you, not your great uncle. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's like, it's interesting because to hobbits, you're, who your family is, is who you are. Like, by telling family stories, you're sharing something about yourself. But Thorin is just like... And it's interesting that Thorin saying that, because he's Thorin, son of Prime, son of Thorin, right? So it's like, it's not like genealogy, ancestry, family doesn't have any for dwarves. It just has a different perspective that it's important for, like, you material heritage in a way, but for you personal development, it doesn't say it. For your personality, it doesn't say it. But like, so the yeah. fact that the family influences the personality is so obvious when like the narrator is like, the took is taking over Bilbo. Oh no, Simon is back. Oh no, the took is here. It's like a took is picked, uh, has a, it's interesting. Oh no, 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 the baggage wants to stay home and he's tired of those walls. Um, and it's not, it's like hobbits have, uh, normally it's like you have two walls inside you and like Bilbo has two hobbits inside him, it's a took and a baggage and they keep arguing about what we should do. You have two hobbits inside you. <laughs> from the took side and I was just like well that's a way to talk about bisexuality at least so anyway um yeah bad jokes that and like every every single time something that could be described as queer happens I'm gonna be like oh it's the tooks and every side the took every time the took side comes out, I'm gonna be like, oh, a little queer moment. Don't hold me to that, I will forget. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
okay, I'll do it for you. <laughs> oh no! It's a took in the closet. It comes out every now and then. Uh, anyway, I wish Sarah was here to be a menace with me about this. <laughs> Hmm. Anyway, um, yeah, any other thoughts on what we learn about Bagginses and Tooks and Belladonna and Bungo and Bilbo in this introduction? They invented gold and no more said about it. Do they play golf regularly? Only the two? Out of the hobbits? Where do they play golf? How do they play golf? Are they still using goblin head or do they have like all the things? We don't know. We will never know. But they did invent golf and that's great. Is it the same rule that uh, we have? We don't know. We will never know. But they invented golf. The bells are ringing. <laughs> um, the golf thing, I think, is interesting because uh, this book, this book has like a really interestingly varying tone, you know? There are parts where it is extremely beautifully written, and it is obviously taking itself extremely seriously, and they exist beside parts that are written like Farmer Giles of Ham, or that you're not quite sure how to take seriously, where the joke of the thing is more important than the consistency of the world building, which is, you know, if you come from the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion, then that's pretty unusual Tolkien fare. <laughs> Maybe he had the law about golf, he just, just didn't have an appendix, right? <laughs> I mean, maybe, but we also know that, like, oh, sorry, go ahead. Nope, never mind, I was just saying something goofy and all. <laughs> Unlike everything that ever comes out of your mouth. Um, <laughs> uh, we do know that, like, Tolkien, um, rewrote The Hobbit pretty significantly after he decided that it was going to be a prequel to Lord of the Rings, right? So you can see a lot of instances of him trying to make it make sense when it wasn't necessarily originally written that way. I feel like your comment about The Hobbit having serious moments alongside goof moments is perfectly exemplified with this one scene where Thorin, the most serious and serious of that uh, seriousness to all, is pushed through the door and pounded like piled upon by Gomber of Old World and is very displeased about it. So he starts with like a very funny moment. Then Thorin comes up, brush brush himself off and goes, Wait, that's not what the tone of the book and the hero myself should be no 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 no, no. we're not doing that and it's back to serious for a moment and then the dwarves make the beach i'm sorry sorry you will lose yeah i think probably for the most part we'll like try and talk more about the dwarves next week but I definitely have notes about Thorin and thoughts and like 
I think it's interesting how Thorin's seriousness is itself kind of played as a joke in the book. Um, like it tells you several times, like Thorin is a very important dwarf. And, you know, the first time it's kind of like to justify why he's annoyed at being on the bottom of a dwarf pile. Um, and the second time it's like, um, it's talking about how like, he just, he will just, he would just continue talking for hours upon hours, telling people nothing but things that they already know, because he's a very important dwarf, as though that explains it. So it, it's that sense of like, that gentle mocking of like leaders and politicians that, you know, whereas the movie plays Thorin is an important dwarf, very straight. Okay, the movie does not play Thorin straight in the other sense, in my personal opinion. Um, <laughs> But that's because they cast Martin Freeman, so like for Bilbo. So like, what were they expecting? Yeah, I will say though that's the one thing I like about the movie. I really like Martin Freeman, and I have been reading the lines in Martin Freeman's voice. I, some of my friends really like the Hobbit movies for some reason. <laughs> yeah. So I watched them over the summer. One of them, and um, I forgot that Martin Freeman was like, it's a good thing. There. Martin Freeman and just like the whole fact that they put Thranduil in the movies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do agree with you. I do think Martin Freeman made like a perfect Bilbo Baggins. It just cut out like a lot of the scenes, but just keep some of the Martin Freeman scenes, and it would be fine. Uh, one of the video I saw on the Hobbit. It was before it came out, and uh, one YouTube channel about cinema was like, okay, in advance from the movie, which no one has seen yet. Martin Freeman is already a hobbit, so yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> so even before the movie was out, everyone agreed Martin Freeman was the right choice. So, that. Yeah. Well, because he just, he has that long suffering vibe. Yeah. I haven't seen The Hobbit in a few years, and I was determined never to watch it again, but now I think I might have to. It's like, it's good, but then you like, I was watching it, and I was drunk, and I had a whole side conversation with someone, I turned back and they were still in the barrel, I'm not joking. Yeah, well, yeah, because the scene goes on forever. <laughs> it just took so long, between everything, it's just, they're so boring for trying to be overtly action-based and then That's... they're also not true to the books and it's just this bizarre mishmash of cgi that looks like so cgi that is a video game except for some scenes where it's new zealand <laughs> it's very jarring yeah the whole experience of watching the second movie in my experience was this is all taking way too long like the barrels take way too long Solidly, like, 40 minutes of that movie is just, like, them running around Erebor chased by a dragon and, like, melting gold. Oh, that, that part was terrible. It was pretty bad. <laughs> I kind of made it more of a children's movie, because it's kind of a children's book. It is. You know what? Like, it's, it's not... Like, we can read it, too, but it's more meant to be lighter 
then into the news, and then I remember it being depicted in the movie. Yeah. Um, apparently they had, like, apparently the original pitch or something, um, they originally had Guillermo del Toro as a director, and his pitch was to have it be two movies, not three, and his designs and notes had a much more, like, whimsical fairy tale esque feel to it, so that would have been something very, very different. And then various studio mandates later, it was like, we're bringing in Peter Jackson, and also we want this to have like the same tone and action as the Lord of the Rings. So like, make this the Lord of the Rings. Like, I, I knew it was already a tragedy. Like, like the, the biggest tragedy of bringing in Peter Jackson, despite his talent, is that he didn't want to be middle-earth, and I think that's why he dragged it out so for so long. Um, but now that for one of my class, I had to watch one of Del Toro's movies and like very much one of his movies, one he and he made, like Time's uh, Labyrinth. I'm like, oh, that's been amazing. That's been so I cool. really like Pan's Labyrinth. Pan's Labyrinth is a cool movie. It's so cool. I it for so long because it's technically a horror movie, but I was like, what are you talking about? I expected Hollywood horror with gore everywhere. There's no horror. I mean, if you're expecting gore, it does deliver. Yeah, but in a very different way. Okay. I was going to say, there is a torture scene. I know, I didn't really, I turned away. Like, I'm, I, I'm not, I, I'm crazy. But like, what I mean is like, Anyway, it's a veering away from The Hobbit. But, uh, I, I expected more Hollywood horror movies where the scary thing is only the gore and the chain massacre, chainsaw massacre. Uh, but no, it had so much more. And that's absolutely not The Hobbit. No in book, no in movie. Yeah. We probably should go back to that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. To go back to that, but bit of what you were saying on like um, the children's stories, it's even more apparent here because I, if I remember well, Zelda in told in the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings is much more detached from the reader and here it's like this conversational town tone that happens and I noticed it and it sounds very fairy tale to me and like folktale also mm -hmm. like it's something you tell around the fire like you have those kids around the fire during the winter and you're like okay let me tell you this story to both wow you and also scare you into good behavior and that's exactly like i mean it makes sense because that he made it for his kid in the first place for like bedtime stories but like it stays a lot in in the result and i really like that and i they should have made oh sorry i thought you're done yeah I, sorry I, I just don't know how long it stays in the book because it it's very strong at the beginning when he's just doing exposition obviously and then as the characters come out and start speaking and taking the scene, it's 
slows down, but it comes back. It, I was surprised it came back a little bit. So I, I'm curious to see how much it's Sorry, you can go. I'm done. No, sorry, I didn't mean to cut into you. I was just going to say, they should have made the Hobbit movies like Princess Bride style, where it's like the grandpa telling his son a kid, where it should have been like Tolkien telling the story to his kids and like, kept that like big fairy tale, whimsical setting. Because, yeah, I really like that, what you said, Eloise. Yeah, there were points in the writing, um, and I didn't get all the way through the chapters, and I don't know if it sticks around either, but there was one part specifically that reminded me of Lemony Snicket and the way he wrote a series of unfortunate events with the narrator interacting with you, not just, like, implicitly telling a story, but it goes, Hobbits. Oh, what are Hobbits? Responding to a question that the reader asks, presumably, and that that really reminded me of Lemony Snicket doing the word definitions all the time. And that's that's still kind of very fairy tale, surreal kind of narrative tone, which is fun. You kind of have to skip a little bit already in the, not the speed phase, but like the, the thing about the rune, the text about the rune. Like it doesn't address the reader specifically and not visually, but just the fact that it's like this is a story from a long, from a story of long ago. And at that time, it was different. And so that's what we mean, etc. And it's like it doesn't call out the reader like you want to know that, but it does really be conscious of the reader and being like, okay, like before you get confused, ten years old Sophia, or before you call me out, linguistic student, uh, this is what we mean. But it it could be very academical, right? Because Tolkien and Technically, it's a definition of terms, but it's also done in, it's kind of a preface, the tone of Hobbit, where the narrator is like, hey reader, let's go together on this story. It's, so, so the thing is, like, it might be academic, but it's also very, um, it's in plain language, right? It's not the pseudo-academia of concerning Hobbits. Like, you can tell that even though it's not talking down to kids, it is an explanation written for kids. Um, because it explains, like, um, you know, like, it doesn't use linguistic jargon. It just, like, phonetically writes out which letters it's talking about, like, E-E. -E. Um, and it, it, it brings you in. Um, and gives you puzzles to solve. <laughs> so generally, right, because like generally this book will be presented like with the map. And then you'll have the rooms. And then there's an in-text invitation. Like there's a, parent there's a parenthetical in the text that's like, if you go to the front of the book and you look at the map, you will see what we are talking about. So it's very engaging in that sense. I also think I would definitely describe the tone as like conspiratorial in places, which is maybe where it overlaps quite a bit with Lemony Snicket is where it's being like satirical or conspiratorial, where it's kind of talking to you as though the two of you know the truth of the world and the two of you know how ridiculous other people can be. And it's doing that in really subtle ways, but there's stuff like, you know, 
Um, the Begginses have lived in the neighborhood of the hill for time out of mind, and Peep considered them very respectable, not only because most of them were rich, but also because they never had any adventures or did anything unexpected. You could tell what a Beggins would say on any question without the bother of asking him. Yeah, that was very funny. As a line. So I feel like it's using humor to, like, gently poke fun of the types of adults that kids would see around them. Another interesting like tone and narrative style thing I would like to bring to your attention is the fact that this is a fantasy world that is aware of fantasy tropes. Um, so there's like it, it's it's particularly particularly Gandalf and Bilbo. The dwarves seem a little bit less like self-aware of what kind of story they're in, though I think they still kind of are. But um, Gandalf and Bilbo especially, like Bilbo talks about the stories Gandalf will tell about like rescuing princes and the unexpected luck of widow's sons. Um, Gandalf, uh, and then the entire way they talk about adventures as though there's this this whole thing with like a social currency built around what an adventure is um is very funny it's played for humor um and there's like a particular gandalf quote that i'm trying to find there we go um <laughs> that would be no good said the wizard not without a mighty warrior capitalized even a hero capitalized I tried to find one, but warriors are busy fighting one another in distant lands, and in this neighborhood, heroes are scarce, or simply not to be found. 
Swords in these parts are mostly blunt and axes are used for trees and shields as cradles or dish covers and dragons are comfortably far off and therefore legendary. That is why I settled on burglary, especially when I remembered the existence of a side door. And here's our little Bilbo Baggins, the burglar, the chosen and selected burglar. <laughs> I love it because I rigid D&D like, so I can find a paladin or a, a fighter, but here we have a rogue for you. <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> but I kind of wonder how he would classify the dwarf, because technically the, like, kind of why you're like a little bit. But just by the backstory story in years, they're not full on warriors either. Like they fight the craft. Yeah. I just want to hold them back. If you're a toy maker, are you making the right thing? Yeah. It's a dragon, man. Um, yeah, we haven't got any of Thorin's like warrior side at this point. Mm -hmm. and, and because of this line of Gandalf, they're not included in the warrior side. Because yeah. the warriors are off. They're not even including the dwarves as warriors or heroes. Which I don't know if Thorin does but he would probably call himself a hero. Um, actually definitely put a pin in that because there's a whole narrative aside later revolving around the narrator telling you dwarves are not heroes. Oh. Yeah. I don't know. What did the what do you what do the rest of you guys think about the way this is playing with like fairy tale tropes and adventure tropes? I guess maybe like um because like if especially if this is like meant for like a kid to be reading, kind of getting like the kid to like really relate to Bilbo that like they've never gone on an adventure and like dragons are legendary and warriors are non-existent and stuff. So kind of just getting them to be like, yeah, like, I want to go on adventure. And Bilbo's never been on an adventure, so let's go on one together. It's actually, going off of that, it is kind of a tactic to make you excited about the real world, right? Like, both the fact that it starts by telling you this is a story of long ago, not this is, you know, a made-up story, and the fact that um, the whole sense of... Well, to people here, dragons are very far away, which means they're legendary, kind of works to, like, imply that the things you think are legendary might just be really far away and out of your experience. I like how they're, how Tolkien is using children are familiar with like the idea of heroes and dragons and whatnot and using it to kind of explain his unfamiliar but still close to that sort of thing his world uh, so i think that's really interesting way of going about that yeah
I really liked the, um, yeah, like the, the familiar reference points mixed with subtle parody. The line, like the warriors are all off in distant parts fighting each other, really, really got me because that's not a line that you can really strictly connect to the Lord of the Rings in that sense. In the Lord of the Rings, there's a pretty obvious, like, good versus evil fight going on. Whereas here, it's poking fun of the idea of people who fight for a living by saying, well, eventually, like, the only people who are left to fight are each other. I think it's also interesting because uh, if I remember well, I thought it came out between the two wars, right? Yeah, 1937. And so, as a result, it would make sense to say that, in a way. It's like the war, the great war we just had, and the war that's looming over us again, because we're all aware of the tension in the, in the continent. Um, it's just warriors fighting each other. Like, there's no good and evil. It's just fighters, soldiers on both sides. And, like, you have assholes on both sides, and you have good people on both sides, and they die on both sides. And it's, it's weird because, like, it's also written from England. So, basically, the, the battlefields are far away, but also not that far away. Like when I I'm gonna be around from like the, the, the world wars again because I love doing that. But when I see the the, the hoping like the, the, the memory or even like the on the live when I read all newspapers and see the live report of the war and World War One and World War Two from Canada's perspective, it's a far away war. It's the, the trauma is of separation with the soldiers going off to war. But for England and France and Belgium and a lot of European countries, it's a trauma of having the bed in your backyard, having the bomb on your house, and having to move away from that. And and we love sick people. No. Um, and so. This line is interesting because England is in between. It's never had armies, both armies on its territory fighting, but it also had air like air raids. Not by the time the Hobbit is published, I think, or less by the time the Hobbit is published, because it's mostly a World War II thing, but it's close enough that it is personal. But it's also far enough because in 1914 and 1918, like the, the sea channel is still a, a far away thing to cross. It's not necessarily easy to cross. But well. um, so, yeah. I, I always gonna see the reference to the World War uh, in Tolkien's writing forever. <laughs> And, and the line definitely reminds me of that. 
also to a certain extent, the idea of distance is psychological, not geographical. So the sense that Bilbo doesn't actually have to travel that far to find adventures, but because he's comfortable in his like insular shire, interacting with the same people every day, the world feels very small to him and things that are maybe only like a couple days journey or something like that feel impossibly distant because it's impossibly distant from his experiences. was a That's also why we have this memory of the war was here. But when we go in the south, or even a lot of region of France, but yes, there was a war. We had privation, like we had to work. We need the amount of food and like we had people going to the war, but it was also physically distant. In, in that like it existed because our, our sons and brothers and fathers were there but it was not in our garden so i also think from this perspective within france that not all of france had it in its backyard only a little small part of france did and, and for the rest of them it's like oh no we're fine we still have our medieval castle all down here everything's fine Ah, uh, well, then, you know, we are aware of it, but not that much. Like, the, the, the mental distance is also here. Anyway. I have... Just a rumbly thing. <laughs> okay, sweet. Yeah. What's its yeah. name? This is Rogue. Oh, we have our She's, this is Rogue. She's our small cat. She's so tiny. She's like eight pounds, and her brother Paladin is almost 14 pounds. And he's a giant fluff monster. Yeah. No, Katie, did you have other things you wanted to talk about in the beginning of The Hobbit? Uh, not so. We kind of touched on it. I was really appreciating was the, yeah, we talked about the, like, the narrator being very, uh, like, approachable almost um i'm relating it back to things that the reader would know of like i like the description of the the hole and he said oh wait it's not like this dark smelly hole it's not a sandy hole it's a very nice hole you know um so that familiarity i think was nice and it's interesting seeing tolkien's writing styles in that way as well like when you go from lord of the rings and then to this 
it's it's very different, but it still has the same kind of charm. And he knows how to play to his audience. Yeah. Eloise, was there anything else you wanted to talk about in the beginning of The Hobbit? But someone who has a lot of vocabulary who is very good at crafting stories. Yeah. Because, like, just like the, all the parentheses, you barely see them in, in Lord of the Ring. But yet, like, he has clothes, lots of them, and he had that, even more. And it's like just even comments that you can imagine. Uh, a parent has been making up this being like, hey, little joke for you. Hey, little detail that I'm just thinking of, but that's not part of the sentence. Like, in fact, creative writing class to read one year like because we, we were all like bringing in an example of writing and so I gave them um of Baron and Luthien to read and my prof was just like like my professor for that class was like oh like I couldn't I I did not enjoy reading this at all like it just it just it just sounds way too much like the King James Bible and like I hated reading it and I was like oh <laughs> okay that I feel like I will probably share in a chat or like next week and my other comments are like Bilbo is a dandy <laughs> He's just 
this little dapper man who cares so much about his clothes being perfect, and I love him. Uh, I guess that's another kind of. Oh. Go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying, I'm still impressed uh, that he has room to devote his clothes, and I can <laughs> barely feel my own, um, my own closet. Uh. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, sorry, my internet's kind of wonky a little bit here, but um, I just wanted to, 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 to say that it was interesting, speaking of the clothes, um, this idea of his almost like, I want to say femininity, but not stereotypical masculine qualities, mm -hmm. yet he can still have those and be the, the hero of the story eventually, and which is very uh like not not very typical in, in a lot of like girl lore and stuff like that so kind of an interesting thing to think about there's like a semi-serious and semi-completely trolling part of me that wants to make the serious argument that hobbit is a gender <laughs> unto itself which like the thing about that that I find really interesting with like Bilbo and representations of gender is the emphasis that the narration has on the fact that like he is a hobbit. So this is a hobbit hole and that means comfort. And so he's like a very comfortable creature. Like hobbits eat a lot and you know have round bellies which is also something that's not you know seen as very macho um and there's that part where he like he like lets out like an involuntary like shriek um i'm trying to find do, 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 do. yeah so so it's like, you know, poor Bilbo couldn't bear it any longer. At May never return, he began to feel a shriek coming up inside, and very soon it burst out like the whistle of an engine coming out of a tunnel. Um, and then, you know, all of the dwarves spring up, like Gandalf gets some light, um, and in its firework glare, the poor hobbit could be seen kneeling on the hearth rug, shaking like a jelly that was melting, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and dang it, where is that line? There's a line about like, oh, he's just like a little fellow after all. What is it? Is it flowing? Oh, Gennaf says, excitable little fellow gets the new faces because he's one of the best. There's that, which is also interesting, but like, <laughs> not trying to find it. Oh, little fellow bobbing on the map. <laughs> Oh, 
because Bilbo himself takes exception to it but what I think is interesting is how like not just dialogue but the narration itself will bring attention to the fact that you know Bilbo is a hobbit the hobbit in fact and it will kind of use that to excuse his behavior or like the narration itself will frequently kind of follow Gandalf's vein of like oh he's just a small fellow like, you'll have to excuse him. This is all very outside, you know, his realm of experience. So there, it's, it's really, really interesting how Bilbo is, like, deeply unmanly, but there isn't any judgment for it from the narration. The narration is just like, oh, the, the, poor, the poor thing. <laughs> He's just like that. But also he, like... But also, he is a very competent person, and we do know that. (laughs) I think another thing, too, that I found interesting about gender and manliness um, is that established Belladonna, his mother, as the two, as not only the queen one, but the adventurous one. Um, it makes it even more interesting when you have Bilbo, the ghost, being like, oh, the two, two covers, or oh, the back end of the Basically, what it implies is that the comfortable, calming, uh, don't go on adventures, don't get hurt. Person is the father. The mother is the one who's going to fight the wolf of the property and then go see where like, the wolf is and kick some more. And then eventually she'll be like looking at the side of the river and be like, I wonder what's there. And like cross the river. And like. I want to it's a reversal of gender, but at the same time, I feel it's also like a recognition that even traditional female roles requires a lot of business. Like possibly when you live in the company, which the Shire emulates. Like in English countryside, you still have one being around, and if you want to protect your family, you want your home, like as a home caretaker, the mother still has to do a lot of work and to be strong and fierce. And sure, she's not going on adventure like Ladonet is good or like Bilbo would, but um, to me, like it can be both a reversal of gender, but also like, hey. Being a woman might mean being dainty and scarily cat when you're like in the high society of London, 
but if you live in the countryside, you don't have no time for this bullshit. <laughs> you have to be fierce, you have to be strong. And women are, are as strong as men, and sometimes stronger. And I think that's also one thing that him and might come from how he was raised with his single mother. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm speculating here. Uh, but I think it, it can be both. Both uh, let's switch gender and both let's get back to Caesar what he deserves. Like women are badass. Yeah. yeah, I think it's interesting that the narrative very much frames it as a Took thing versus a Baggins thing with like Belladonna and Bull Roarer. But there's also the mention, as you know, you guys already pointed out, of Belladonna's sisters. And it is just really interesting from like a feminist criticism perspective that like Bil like Bilbo's mother represents the adventurous side of him and Bilbo's father represents like the homemaking side of him like Bungo Baggins is literally a homemaker like he literally constructed Bag End but also a homemaker in the more feminine sense of like making this place comfortable and making it comfortable for his spouse <laughs> Um, and you, you see that carried on through Bilbo too, where, you know, he always has enough food on hand and he does like, he must do a lot of baking and cooking just to have the sheer amount of like biscuits and seed cakes that he perpetually has in his home and like eats his way through. So like his hobbies appear to be like gardening, baking, knowing a lot about flowers and having visitors like being a host so just the fact that there's literally like nothing weird in this narr narrative about the fact that he's just like a little hobbit man doing all of these stereotypical stereotypically feminine things um and when he goes like when he finally goes out of his like domestic sphere and into the wide world it's like framed as the side of him that is connected to his mom. As a side note, this is one of the many, many things that gets me when people are like, Sophia, like this book has so many woman characters and like The Hobbit doesn't have any woman characters. So like, this is more feminist. And I'm like, I, w I feel far more comfortable reading The Hobbit than I do reading like Patrick Rothfuss's The Name of the Wind because even though all of the people on this journey are men, there is like nothing that feels confining about the gender roles in The Hobbit. Like women are mentioned as people who go on adventures just like anyone else and like Hobbits kind of stand in as literally every gender because they like merge all of these masculine and feminine traits. So like this is 
a book that I would much rather read than a book that has a lot of women in them, but also they're talked about as being like sexy or like their love interests or like the main character talks about what a good feminist he is, but he also tells his best friend, treat my sword like a lady, not like a whore. And I'm like, you know what? That line came before we met any actual woman. I'd rather read that.